All right, well, turn with me once again to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Last week, we started a a series in this book, and today we're going to pick that back up uh, by picking back up in chapter 1. So grab your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Habakkuk, find chapter 1. Back in the year 1875, the English poet... William Ernest Hensley wrote these words in his poem, Invictus. The poem's called Invictus. He wrote these words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those are words that were meant to inspire They're words that were intended to summon the reader of the poem to a sense of personal greatness. No matter what it costs, no matter the punishments or the dangers involved, we are to rise to the occasion of being the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own souls. But I wonder, how many of us who are here today can see right through that? How many of us can see those words for what they really are? I mean, at the end of the day, are we really the masters of our own destiny? Is that really how life works? I think that if there's one experience we can all relate to, it's not the experience of being strong enough or capable enough to really take charge of our lives. Few, if any of us, have ever wielded that much power. So while we do have real agency, while we can make real decisions about how we're going to conduct our lives, the experience we most have in common is not that we can take charge and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and impose our will. The experience that I believe we all share is this. We all know what it's like to feel helpless. We all have had those times in our lives where we feel powerless to change our circumstances. All it takes is a medical diagnosis or the loss of a job or the ending of a close relationship. Those kinds of things happen and they, they, they make us realize something really fast. They make us realize I'm not in control here. I'm not in control of my life. In fact, quite the opposite. What I feel in this moment is that I am absolutely helpless. And that can be an incredibly disheartening realization. It can lead us to want to ask God, what on earth is going on? What are you doing, Lord? I'm reeling here. I feel helpless. I feel powerless. Are you going to stand idly by and just watch this happen? Or are you going to help me? Last week, we saw that Habakkuk prayed along these very same lines. We looked at his prayer of lament in verses 1 through 4 where that feeling of powerlessness drove him to ask questions of God such as how long and why. Habakkuk was looking at the spiritual decline of his own people. He was distraught over the injustice and the idolatry that had seeped into the people of Judah. His own culture that he was living in was moving further 
and further and further away from God. And this left Habakkuk feeling totally helpless. He was He was seeing his his culture drift away from the Lord, and he felt powerless to stop it. But ironically enough, the fact that the people were moving away from God was the very thing that God was using to bring Habakkuk closer to himself. It was the very means that God was using to strengthen the faith of this lamenting prophet. And so often, that's how it goes for us as well. We find ourselves in situations where the ways of God seem incomprehensible to us. We find ourselves baffled by things that are happening all around us and we feel helpless to fix these things. But all the while, God is using those very things to accomplish His plans and His purposes in the lives of His people. And He is inviting us to trust Him to do that. He's inviting us to trust Him. In the midst of those things, even when we don't fully understand him. And that's exactly what we see happening in our passage for today. Really, that that leads us to the big idea for this sermon. The big idea, the big takeaway for each of us this morning. Is that our felt powerlessness is a means by which we can learn to trust and rely on our powerful God. There will be times in our lives where we're confused. There are going to be times where we feel helpless. There are those dark nights of the soul where we're going to wonder what on earth God is doing. And yet at all times and in all seasons, our calling as Christians remains the same. We are called simply to trust in the Lord. So let's turn to our text where after voicing His prayer of lament to God, Habakkuk will now hear God's response to him. I alluded to this last week, but what's happening in these verses is God is sharing his plans with Habakkuk. He's he's making known to Habakkuk what he is going to do in the future. So look with me at verses 5 through 11 of Habakkuk chapter 1, and let's listen in on what the Lord says to this prophet. Verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. So beginning right here in these verses we just read, 
I believe that God gives us four things to remember when circumstances beyond our control leave us feeling helpless and confused. When that happens, when we find ourselves in that place in life, there are four things about God that we would do well to remember. The first thing we need to keep in mind comes in verse 5, where God essentially says to Habakkuk, listen, I am doing something that's going to blow your mind. Lift up your eyes to the nations and watch what happens. You're not going to believe this. Now, the reason that God can say these things is because he is the Lord of history. That's the first thing we need to remember when we're looking at the world, when we're looking at our lives and we're struggling to understand what God is doing, we have to keep in mind that no matter how things appear, God remains always and ever the sovereign Lord of history. Now, from our perspective, that's not how things always look. It can seem like things are spiraling out of control. It can seem as if God has become passive or silent in the face of our pain and suffering. But that's not who he is. No, the reality is that God's power is always maximally active. Changes in our circumstances, for better or for worse, do not represent any change in God. No, he is the unchanging rock of ages. He is in total control. And he is exercising his authority over all times, places, peoples, and events. Now we look at our own culture, and in some ways we see similar things to what Habakkuk was witnessing in his own culture. We too see what appears to be spiritual decline. Right? People are not attending church as frequently as they used to. Not only that, there's rampant confusion over all kinds of important issues from sexuality and gender to race and politics. And so many of the institutions that have held our culture together over the years seem to be crumbling right in front of our eyes. We read the news and there's plenty to be worried about. There's plenty to wring our hands about. But even with all of that, God can come to us this morning. He can speak to our hearts. He can say the exact same thing he said to Habakkuk. I am doing a work in your days. And he can say that and he can mean it because of who he is. So let's not be fooled by appearances. God has always been. And will always be the Lord of history who speaks and who acts out of his own nature and character. That's the first thing we need to remember. Here's the second thing. We need to remember that God has a plan. God has a plan. As the Lord of history, he's, he's got a specific plan that he wants to accomplish. He's not only Lord over what happens in some distant and remote sense. He is also Lord within what happens. He is present. He is up close and personal. He is seeing to it that his will is carried out. We saw this last week. How God is a storyteller. 
Before the foundation of the world, he decided to tell a story. He determined how that story would unfold. And he is now, even in this moment, seeing to it that his story is being told in his way. We see this in verse 6. Where God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up that bitter and hasty nation that's marching through the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So now, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of God's plan. We're sort of seeing how the sausage is made, if you will. And it's not pretty, just like making sausage. It looks pretty gross. (laughs) But look, there's this nation that Habakkuk refers to as the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? These are the Babylonians. It's a nation that was ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Chaldeans were the tribe of people who were in charge of the nation of Babylon. They were sort of like the ruling class. And they were not nice people by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, the very mention of their name had power to strike fear in the heart of lesser nations. One interpreter of Habakkuk says this about verse 6. That God is warning Habakkuk that an invasion was coming from the scariest people he had ever heard of. Just look at how the Chaldeans are described in verses 7 through 11. They're the dread of all the earth. They write their own rules about things like justice and dignity. Verse 8 starts to describe their armies. It says that their horsemen are as swift as leopards. They they swoop in like an eagle hunting its prey. Verse 9. If the Chaldeans show up on your doorstep, you better be afraid. Because their visit to you can only mean one thing. It meant violence. Cruelty. They gathered up their captives just like sand in a jar. They laughed at the world's most powerful kings. They mocked rulers. They would look at the fortress of your city and they would crack jokes about it. You're getting the picture, right? These are people that you don't want to mess with. This is a nation unlike any other. And the most striking thing that's said about the Babylonians is found in verse 11. It says that they are guilty men whose own might is their God. They worshipped their own power and strength. They deified their own efficiency and capability. So not only was this nation fierce, not only were they strong, not only were they capable, they were also guilty. Guilty of blatant idol worship. As a nation, the Babylonians stood guilty before God because they were idolaters. Plain and simple, no qualification, and yet, and yet, God was going to use this nation. The Chaldeans were the nation that God had chosen to raise up for his purpose. And he was going to use this wicked nation of all the other nations, he was going to use them to do something incredibly just. God was going to use the Chaldeans as a means of carrying out his just judgment against his own idolatrous, wicked people. 
That brings us to the next thing we need to remember. We need to remember that God's plan, even though it can be hard for us to understand, it always serves his sovereign purpose. His plans are carried out in his way for reasons that he determines. And our hearts need to be reminded of this again and again and again. Of course, that was not Habakkuk's initial response to this. He was hearing about all this from God for the first time, and he, he's having trouble wrapping his mind around it. He, he can't quite get there. He, he can't quite get on board with what God is saying. So let's look at his prayer starting in verse 12. This is Habakkuk's response. He prays, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Verse 1 of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and I'll station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So it's obvious in many ways that Habakkuk has serious misgivings about these things. Really to, to say that he has misgivings is to put it mildly. I mean, Habakkuk was already distressed. He was already upset about the spiritual decline of his people. He was already a man in the throes of lament and then this. Right? Come to find out, God tells him there's an invasion on the horizon. Judgment was coming. And that judgment was going to happen at the hands of the most ruthless nation on the face of the earth. Now I'm sure that up until this point, Habakkuk had been holding out hope. He, he was hoping that his people would experience some kind of spiritual renewal. I mean, remember, Habakkuk was old enough by this time to remember what things were like under King Josiah, who had led uh, the people of Judah to return to the Lord. And so maybe Habakkuk was hoping that that would happen once again. But only, it, it was only to find out but the armies of Babylon were on their way. And to Habakkuk, this was inconceivable. It was confusing. It was disillusioning. Now, of course, even in the midst of all of that, Habakkuk is a man who fears the Lord. We see that in verse 12 where he says all the right theological things. 
He says, God is from everlasting. God is holy. God keeps his promises to his people. And so it cannot be that the people of Judah would be completely wiped out. Habakkuk's basically saying, we're the people of your promise. We shall not die. So you see there, Habakkuk's first gut level response is to appeal to what he knows to be true of God. But if you look at verse 12 in light of verse 13, the very next verse, you see something else. You see that Habakkuk's theology was being challenged by this. He prays to God and he says, Lord, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil and wickedness. And yet, how could it be that you're going to stand by and idly watch as these wicked people swallow up a nation that is more righteous? I mean, how, how does that work? Now, this, this question, this, this statement, this prayer right here is very telling, revealing. It reveals something about the way that Habakkuk looks at other people. In his mind, there's like this sort of moral calculus going on. It's almost as if there's like this hierarchy of sinners where you've got the, the Chaldeans way, way down at the bottom, right? Because they're the, the really bad people. And then you've got the people in Judah who are in spiritual decline. They're kind of in the middle because they're pretty bad. And then you've got the righteous, right? You, you've got guys like Habakkuk who are the righteous ones, the good guys, in other words, Habakkuk is kind of playing the comparison game. In his mind, the people of Judah weren't all that bad compared to the really bad Chaldeans. And really, I think this is part of why Habakkuk is having such a hard time with God's plan. He hasn't quite reached the point of being able to see the depths of his own sinfulness. He can't see his sinfulness quite for what it really is. Now, I once heard someone say that when we do what Habakkuk is doing here, when we stand next to someone else and we compare ourselves to them in order to make ourselves look a little better, when we do that, it's like two guys standing at the foot of Mount Everest, and one guy looks over at the other guy and he says, Ha, I'm an inch taller than you. I got a whole inch on you, bro. And it's like, well, who cares? Who cares about an inch? What's an inch? You're, you're standing next to the tallest mountain in the world. And when sinners stand before a holy and righteous God, we're not going to be fixated on that. We're not going to be fixated about how we measure up against other people. No, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be gasping in awe and worship at the Lord, at his glory and his holiness. I mean, we just think about. When the prophet Isaiah encountered the glory of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 and the train of God's robe was filling the temple and the, the hosts of heaven were surrounding the throne of God and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his great glory. And Isaiah is seeing this with his own two eyes. And how does he respond? He doesn't go... Those people over there, they're bad. They're bad people. Not as righteous as me. That's not what Isaiah does. That's not his attitude. That's not his demeanor. Instead, Isaiah is undone. And he's undone not only by the sins of others, he is undone by his own sin. 
And he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When God reveals himself to his people, friends, we don't go looking for what's wrong with others. We need to be very careful. And when we're listening to the word of God being preached and God is is revealing his glory to us in the pages of his word, we need to be very careful that our first response to the sermon is not, so-and-so really needs to hear this. This would really straighten them out. No, when we are exposed to the glory of God through his word, what needs to happen is our eyes need to bounce straight from his supreme worthiness to our unworthiness. Habakkuk may have felt helpless about his circumstances. That wasn't his biggest problem. Habakkuk's biggest problem is I'm not sure he has reached the point where he felt helpless about his own sinful condition. And that can be an issue. That can be an issue for us as much as anybody else, because as long as we're walking around thinking that we're pretty good people, right? as as long as we're walking around thinking, hey, you know what? I'm doing pretty well compared to most other people. As long as that is our mentality, we're going to struggle to accept that God's ways are good and just and righteous when bad things are happening to us. Instead, what we'll end up doing is we'll end up presuming that we deserve better. Our worldview will look more like karma and less like Christianity. And it'll keep us from seeing the truth about our God. It'll make us less and less able to see that the hardest things that happen in our lives are being used by God in this very moment to make us more hopeful and humble. Holy. But Habakkuk couldn't see that. He was still struggling to square what he had just heard about God's plan with what he knew about God's justice. And it left him reeling. It's like his very worldview was being turned on its head. He thought things in the world worked one way. Now he's not so sure. We see this coming through in verses 14 through 17. Where Habakkuk imagines the Chaldeans as a sadistic fisherman who plunders the sea. Habakkuk prays and he says to God, You make mankind like the fish of the sea and they're brought up with a hook and they're captured in a net. And then the fisherman laughs maniacally. Right? In some sick, twisted way, he derives joy from this. He rejoices and is glad that the sea is being emptied of fish. That's what the Chaldeans were like. As they made their way through the earth, pillaging and destroying everyone that they came in contact with, they rejoiced in that. They rejoiced and they were glad that they were wiping out entire nations, entire groups of people. And to make matters worse, Habakkuk says, The Chaldeans worshipped their own mechanisms of power. They worshipped and made sacrifices to the net that was used to catch the fish. 
rather than worshiping the God who made the fish in the first place. That's how little they thought of God. And that's how little they thought of those that God had made in his image. And so Habakkuk is like, really? Like, these are the people? These are the people that are going to be used to judge us? That cannot be right, can it? And Habakkuk isn't just saying these things for dramatic effect. He's actually looking for a response. He's he's expecting a response from God. Because look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I'm going to station myself on the watchtower of the city. And I'm going to wait. And I'm going to see what God's answer to me is going to be. Habakkuk was confused. He felt helpless. He was troubled by what he had learned about God's plan. And so he is doing what any godly person would do in this exact same situation. He's sincerely waiting. He's genuinely hoping that he will hear from the Lord. And if I had to guess, I'd say that there are many of us here today who find ourselves in a similar spot. We're in a season of waiting. In fact, in a very real way, you could say that that's true of all of us, right? The entire Christian life is a season of waiting. So there are none of us who get to escape having to wait for the Lord. There there are none of us who get to weasel our way out of this. Now, we all have to remain here amidst the broken, inconsolable things of this world. And we all have to wait on God to tell the next part of his story. We have to wait for his plan to unfold in his timing and in his way. And that's not always easy. Sometimes it's downright hard. It feels impossible. But it does have a way of positioning us for greater trust in him. And that's the last thing we need to remember about God. Through his plan, he is summoning us to respond to him in faith. God is the Lord of history. God has a plan. His plan is always purposeful. And through that purposeful plan, he wants to call each and every one of us to walk by faith. Read with me. In chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Habakkuk says, the Lord answered me. And here's what he said. God says, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. So that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. His his death, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own, collects as his own all people. So once more, we see God in these verses answering Habakkuk. 
And God is essentially telling him that in the midst of this waiting, in the midst of waiting for these things to happen, there are two ways to live. As we wait on the Lord, there are two contrasting modes of being that we can embrace. And as we make our way through life in this dark, fallen, sinful world with all its pain, with all its brokenness, these two ways of living are confronting us. They're confronting us so that we'll have to devote ourselves to one of them or the other. The first way is the way where our souls become puffed up with conceit. Here God is alluding to the Chaldeans. He's alluding that the Chaldeans had clearly embraced this way of living. Look at verses 4 and 5. They, they tell us that the Chaldeans lived with hubris and arrogance. They were drunkards. Their greed was insatiable. They played by their own rules. And they thought they answered to no one because by their own estimation, they were at the top of the food chain. And so often, that's the way of the world. But God calls us to go a different way. In verse 4, he tells us that the world is going to do what the world is going to do. But those who are righteous shall live by faith. That's the call for us as the people of God. It's very simple. We're called to live by faith. This has been the will of God for us in every age. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis where God's story begins to unfold, you see this in the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was considered righteous because he had faith. He simply trusted that when God says he will do something, it's as good as done. Now, did Abraham ever waver in his faith? You bet he did. There were times when Abraham was sinful. There were times where Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands. But God was always there to call him back to that posture of trust. And Abraham, time and time again, he always returned. And that's what God wants for us today. That's what he desires for his people. He wants to call us back to that place of relying upon Him and trusting in Him. When we feel hopeless, when we feel helpless and confused about our lives, God is using that very feeling. He's using that very experience to deepen our faith. In every season, at every time, His word to us remains the same. He tells us the righteous shall live by faith. And the truth is that everything we will ever need is found in that one statement. Because right there in verse 4, what you have is the seed of the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Habakkuk 2.4 shows up multiple times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in the book of Romans as well as in the book of Galatians. The writer of the book of Hebrews also quotes it because this verse speaks to what it means to be righteous before God, which goes to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, justification isn't just one doctrine among many others. It's, it's not just something we can take or leave and 
You know, it really doesn't matter. No, justification is absolutely essential to the gospel. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it well. He once said that if justification by faith alone stands, then the church will stand. If justification collapses, then the church will collapse. This is because the doctrine of justification is God's ultimate answer to life's most pressing question. As we experience feelings of helplessness, as we face uncertainty in our lives, we want to know one thing. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay in the end? We're all wondering that all the time. Every moment of our lives, our thoughts are consumed with that question. God, am I going to be okay? And so justification is God's way of answering that question once and for all. As the people of God, we don't have to wonder anymore. We don't have to question our standing with God. Regardless of how we feel about ourselves, regardless of what kind of week we're having, we can know that we are right with God. It's been settled. He has declared us righteous. And really, that's what justification is. It's God's declaration that you, a sinner, are now righteous. And that declaration is made solely on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. It means we're not justified by our own merits. We're not justified by our ability to muster a stellar performance in life. It's not because we've done enough. It's not because our good works measure up and outweigh our bad works. No, this declaration of righteousness is a gift. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Through him, we receive a gift that we could never deserve. So if you're believing the gospel this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, you never need to wonder ever again whether or not you're going to be okay because your greatest problem in life has been solved. Your greatest problem is that you were once an enemy of God. You were born that way. You were born estranged from him. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds every second of the day only to spite God. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us this way. It says that we were dead. We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. And because of this, we were just like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. And listen, let me tell you, dead people do not come back to life on their own. I mean, you want to talk about helpless? Being dead is being helpless in the worst way. You don't get more helpless than that. We were powerless, completely powerless to raise ourselves up from our lifeless condition. There was nothing we could have ever done to bring ourselves out from under the right, just, and righteous wrath of God. But the moment... That the light of the gospel broke through all of that. The moment that you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the moment that you became righteous. God flipped a switch in you. You stopped being dead. You stopped being a child of wrath. And in an instant, you were put right with God. He declared you righteous. And it's all because of Jesus Christ, his son. 
You see, in the way that Jesus lived his life, he was the ultimate fulfillment of what Habakkuk 2.4 is saying. He was the righteous one. He was the one who never wavered in faith. Everything that Jesus did in his earthly life was offered up in, in perfect trust and obedience to God. Now for our part, the book of Romans tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. None of us measure up. So what did Jesus do? He came and he lived without sin. He never once fell short. He was righteous when the rest of us could only be unrighteous. So where we have failed to obey God, where we have not measured up, Christ lived a perfect life in our place. He fulfilled God's law so that his righteousness could be credited to us. So in his earthly life, Jesus became our justification. He became our righteousness. But that's not only true of his life. It's also true of his death. That's why the cross is so central for us as Christians. Because on the cross, the truly righteous man, the only innocent one, was punished as though he were a sinner. He, he, he took upon himself the death that we all deserve. He took our sin upon his shoulders and he carried it to the cross. So where we've not only failed to measure up to God's law, where we have actively disobeyed his law and rebelled against him, Jesus stood in our place. He bore the punishment for those things, that punishment that should have been ours. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And so on the cross, Jesus became our justification. He became our righteousness. And so now because of that, because of what Jesus has done, because he lived for us, and because he died for us, our standing with God will never again be in question. If you are in Christ today, you will never be more right with God or less right with God than you are right now in this moment. And if you're struggling to believe that, you're struggling to accept that because you've lost assurance of your salvation and, and you feel like you're drowning in your sin, then just remember what God said to the prophet Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. If you have faith, even a mustard seed's worth of faith, you are righteous in the eyes of God, now and forever. In just a moment, we'll have a chance to come to the Lord's table where we'll receive a meal that the Lord has given to strengthen our faith. So many times in the confusion and the helplessness that we feel, our faith can grow weak. Our souls can grow weary. And our trust in God can feel like it's languishing. But Jesus invites us to come to this table. He stands ready to joyfully feed us with his own body and blood so that when we receive this bread and this cup with even, like I said, just a mustard seed's worth of faith, what Jesus gives to us is a mountain of grace so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are indeed justified before God. What this also means, though, is that this table is reserved for those who are living by faith in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, 
you're not following Him today, we ask you not to come to this table. Instead, we plead with you to believe. Believe the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, apart from Him, you are helpless. You are powerless to change the ultimate outcome of your life. You have no ability to fix your greatest problem in life, which is that you are under the wrath of God. And in the end, you will be destroyed. Judgment is coming. The wrath of God will come upon the ungodly. And if you think that's just a bunch of hocus pocus, superstitious, doomsday talk, well then let me just point you back to what Habakkuk says in chapter 2. It awaits its appointed time. It will come in the end. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. The judgment of God will come against sin and sinners, and it will not delay. And yet, let me tell you, there's a way of escape. You can escape from the wrath of God that will come upon the ungodly. If, you are a Christ, if you're not a Christian today, the way for you to do that is simply to trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. All of the wrath of God against you was directed at him so that you might be spared. And so you don't need to remain in your sin a moment longer. You don't need to remain under his wrath. But instead you can come to Jesus Christ and he will be your everlasting refuge. For those of us who know Jesus in that way, in just a moment we'll come to the table, we'll begin here in the front row, and we'll move to the back of the room, we'll come down this aisle over here, and walk across the front and make our way here to the table. That'll just help us with traffic flow. But before we come, church, would you bow your head with me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's seek His face as we prepare our hearts to come to His table. Lord, in all our confusion and our helplessness and our sin, we can know your Son has made us right with you so that in every circumstance, in every situation we face in life, we don't have to wonder where we stand with you. We don't have to wonder whether or not we're going to be okay. Rather, we can have assurance. We receive assurance today that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. God, would you remind us of that now as we come to the table? Give us the grace we need to rest our hearts upon the truth of the gospel as we receive the body and the blood of your Son. God, give us the grace that we sang about today, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Church, come to the feast. Jesus is waiting for you.